Hello and welcome to the Hacked Off Podcast. In today's episode, I've got Evan with me. Evan, who the hell are you? Hi, good morning. Uh, my name is Evan Jones. Um, I'm a security architect working through my own consultancy, Complete Cyber. Um, been working in the industry for probably the past sort of six, seven years, uh, having previously worked in engineering. Um, so that's that's a brief synopsis for me. So engineering into cybersecurity, that, that sounds unusual for me. Is that an, a normal path in or is this something a little bit uh, different? No, I, I kind of agree with you, actually. It's quite... Um, yeah, it's not a normal thing. Most most people who sort of stay in engineering because it's quite a, a technical field in its own right, people tend to kind of gravitate and, and stay in the sort of the engineering sector and sort of climb up the routes into into management as, as you do in most sectors. But no, um, yeah, I went through the course of sort of going to university and college uh, and then going into sort of uh, an electrical engineering sort of background when I sort of left university. But the, um, yeah, I, I was kind of, had my, my heart set on sort of becoming a sort of senior engineer and eventually becoming a manager but no moving into cyber was was uh was definitely uh a kind of a bit of a challenge but also a weird kind of transition as well just because obviously predominantly there's a lot of it involved as well which which doesn't necessarily bake into to engineering in itself did you find then moving from one technical uh, area to another technical area that the the skills were very similar and it was a, a simple move over, or was it as you mentioned there, it's, there's quite a lot of differences. The transferable skill sets were definitely there. So like having the ability to like problem solve um, and having like technical analysis, you know, things like I'm not going to say maths because you know let's not say maths, but <laughs> having that kind of aspect of. <laughs> bringing maths into it can help you know particularly in certain areas of, of cyber but yeah I think um having the technical ability to to break down problems and kind of analyze very complex systems and, and being able to kind of piece that or, or dissect it in a manner that you can understand it, it was definitely advantageous to myself but I think that the initial challenge was going from being in a sector that had nothing to do with cyber and definitely not considering that there's any sort of cyber aspects to it. There is today, but very different when I tried to kind of jump the ship a little bit. But yeah, definitely when I tried to get into it and started to embed my skill sets in, in, in a more of a cyber domain whilst sort of still being an engineer as such, it was it was really useful because I was kind of taking a completely different tack to it. But obviously it would have been quite similar to someone who's pursued a, a career in IT and cyber that would have gone down that kind of route and, and sort of taken it forth with them. But yeah, it was it was definitely weird. It took me a little while to actually break in properly because I think a lot of people were like, you come from an engineering background, you know, what the hell do you know about cyber? You know, what, what skill sets do you have that complement coming into cyber and dealing with digital electronics and large electrical power systems and all that kind of business? You know, what the hell does that have to do with cyber? It's just weird. It's, you know, it's got nothing to do with it kind of thing. But actually, I think kind of recognizing that the, those skill sets can be transferred and you can actually leverage that and, and upskill relatively quickly. There's still definitely a path to kind of bring yourself up to speed but yeah that that was definitely a challenge for me but I'm quite glad I pursued it and it's something I don't regret let's put it that way that's good to hear so you mentioned that you're a security architect now whenever I talk to people about cybersecurity, they always say like oh I want to be a penetration tester because that's clearly the best job that there is and if they can't do that then maybe they'll become a SOC analyst but 
what is a security architect? What is it that you do? Can you explain the the role to somebody who might be interested in getting into cyber and is uh, looking to investigate that role? Yeah, I kind of hate you for asking that question, (laughs) (laughs) if I'm honest with you. So yeah, you kind of pointed out when when people think of cybersecurity, there's the obvious one, which is like hacking, penetration testing. um, And that's kind of helped by the movie industry slightly, isn't it? That, you know, it's like hack the world, kind of break into systems. You know, 10 seconds, I need to hack into the mainframe. Um, and then the other side of it is like these people looking at loads of computer screens with graphs and you know fancy dashboards, the analyst side of it. And then there are other roles in, in cyber that don't really get mentioned too much. I think the obvious probably one is the management side of it, which is like a, an information security manager or a CISO, you know, heads up a department for InfoSec. But yeah, that kind of leaves the, the roles which really don't get much publicity and are quite hard to describe, which is security architecture, which is really about, I think the, the easiest thing to kind of describe architecture is you kind of have the concept of how to kind of solution. I'm going to use this word, which apologies for using it, solutionize. Some people hate me for using that. Solutionizing a problem where you're looking at the technical breakdown of that system. And then you're kind of putting the security hat of saying, well, how secure is this system or how insecure is it? And how do I model the potential risks? Because fundamentally, you're, you're there to try and identify those risks and escalate them upwards, either to your information security manager uh, or, or to your CISO. There's, there's also the way I try and describe security architecture is it's like a Rubik's cube where you've got six different sides to the face of that cube. Um, appreciate the Rubik's can kind of amalgamate into different colors on different sides, but you've kind of got one side where you're doing security assurance. So you're helping out on maybe looking at like supplier due diligence or product security. So for example, you're helping clients or businesses looking at different products that they want to bring in. And it's, it's a day to day activity. You know, company X wants to use IBM, for example. What's the kind of security implications of that? And that's where security assurance comes into it. And the architect will take their technical understanding and, and bring it to the table to kind of analyze the risk. The other side to the security architect is helping businesses kind of shape the, the remediation efforts or, or sometimes it's not remediation, it's, it's new stuff. So a really good example is where you've got companies doing digital transformations and, you know, they'll put a team together. They'll have lots of project managers and program managers, far too many in my case, and not enough of the technical people. And then you'll have like solution architects who are sort of busy designing the interconnected components about, you know, how your data center is going to talk to AWS or GCP. And you'll have your cloud architects who are kind of saying, yeah, we're going to deploy X, Y, Z functions here and there. And they're going to talk to this service and this service. And the problem is, is you often don't get the person coming in and going, yeah, but you're exposing, um, you know, all these different services to the Internet. And what kind of data have you got transversing those systems? So that's kind of like where the security architect comes in and complements the architecture side of things and looks at kind of identifying those risks, those security risks. And, you know, there's a couple of things that we do. Um, there's obviously sort of identifying gap analysis and using frameworks to help you in doing that, you know, such as ISO 27001. You've got the Cloud Security Alliance, well architected principles, those kind of things. And the other thing that I use as well is threat modeling, which is like a really handy tool, which, you know, the best kind of threat modeling is pen and paper. It's just sitting there and literally sketching out really quickly uh, what your system looks like and then saying, if I'm a hacker, how do I get into this system? And you, you don't have to be. You don't have to be a hacker. You don't have to be like, you know, that in depth about how you hack things, but you need to kind of have a little bit of an understanding and that kind of helps you in sort of model those risks. And that, that allows you to kind of then say there is risk to the system and I need to escalate that as well. 
and then just another side to that cube. I know I've only mentioned two, and then I said there's a cube, there's six. But I'm going to need four more from you. Ah, <laughs> I'll make those up <laughs> as I go along. Um, the third one's probably governance, which is a bit more boring. It sounds boring. It kind of is a little bit, but it's important, which is um, how do you sort of take organizational or clients' organization policies and, and kind of trickle them down. So like if someone writes a standard about what good looks like, and says, yeah, this is a perfect world. This is what good looks like. How do you kind of then filtrate that idea down into the depths of like your, your project teams or your, you know, day to day jobs of, of developers that are building things? So it's kind of like getting that governance through and, and also going backwards on that one as well. So if you are implementing like standards and policies and so forth, how do you verify that you're actually fulfilling them and actually meeting them and delivering them? And again, that's where you come down the sort of audit and compliance route which is looking at your, your ISO 27001 and so forth and, and benchmarking that against your teams and stuff like that. So, yeah, so that's that's free. I've, I've given you free. I'll, I'll have to figure <laughs> I'll have to figure it out. What, what are you doing here? You're foreshadowing. Yes. So you're getting the audience's attention because they're thinking, well, he said there was six, but he's only mentioned three. So they must be, they're excited now to hear what the other three are. And of course, you're buying yourself some time. Stay tuned for the other three. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting, though, to hear you talk about. So, so, so we started obviously talking about security architecture there. But one of the things that, that you mentioned is, you know, people, people very often think of cybersecurity as like you have. Uh, the hackers, so those are pen testers, right? And people in uh, associated roles like Red Team. And then you have the guys who uh, monitor things, so that's your SOC analysts. And then what? Uh, CISO? And it, it seems like people very often treat cybersecurity as an industry of like, there is those three jobs and there's nothing in the middle. Um, so hearing you you bring in security architecture as, as a role is obviously interesting, but also pointing out the fact that there's security managers, that is a role. And I, I don't think it gets an awful lot of attention when it comes to people looking at breaking into security and things like that. I think maybe there's this implicit escalation you, you mentioned, you know, uh, on the engineering side, looking at moving up towards management and things like that. So maybe it's just implicit and nobody talks about it. Um, but yeah, there's there's certainly a lot more to cybersecurity than sometimes the simplistic view makes us think, and and certainly a lot to the security architecture role, given you know how many different things we picked up on there. Before we dive into some of the the kind of details of these sections that that we've um, mentioned, how much of your background is useful day to day? So coming over from the the engineering side of things, has that changed your career at all? Do you find yourself working with certain customers because it fits neatly with your previous experience? Or is it just there's a line in the career and that's it, you've moved on from engineering and, and you're just in cyber now? It's a good question. I think the, the best relevance to it is um, so having an engineering background and particularly working in critical national infrastructure, which it's predominantly kind of concerned about safety and kind of reliability or, or operational uh, upkeep. Obviously, that's the industry I sort of came from as, as an engineer. So uh, predominantly, is safety is the driver. So the, the interesting thing, which is still and is still being addressed, is how the security meets safety. That's a really interesting area. May may not be to everyone, but what at what point does a security issue become a safety issue? So that's something that as an engineer that I I take actually because. I can kind of quantify a security risk and then sort of amalgamate that into, well, does that implicate or can that affect the system? And if that affects the system, then will it have a, a safety impact? So that's one thing that I've definitely been able to take across moving into cyber. There are a lot of things that kind of have been cut below the belt a little bit or haven't moved into cybersecurity. So 
obviously a lot of cyber is, is pertaining to control systems and, and IT. It's because of those systems that cybersecurity exists in some way or another. Um, not completely, but to, to some degree. Um, so because engineering is more focused about big control systems and power systems and electronic systems, which are, you know, kind of constitutes a little bit to IT, that kind of is buried in the hatchet in a way. And so I'm kind of more focused on, on IT based systems and particularly with cloud infrastructure and so forth. You know, that's, that's a complete different parallel world to some of the stuff that I used to work on uh, back, back in my past. So yeah, there is, um, there is some transferable stuff, particularly because the industries that I, or, or clients I work with and the industries that they're based in. Um, but yeah, there's definitely a bit of a cutoff, but uh, you know, it's, it's, it's all about career progression and, and, you know, wanting to pursue a career where, you know, you get fulfillment and enjoyment from it. And, and cyber kind of offers that in a way, but that's a caveat, I guess, you know, from, from moving from those different industries. Yeah, you did say right at the beginning when talking about your move into cyber that you were, you were glad that you made the move. Why is that? Why, why are you glad that you've moved into cyber? So one of the things, because of engineering being quite methodical, it, it, it's a tried and tested way like it it doesn't change it it does change i mean you know there are always new uh, improvements being made in the engineering field and they have to to innovate and so forth but i think when i looked at cybersecurity it's an evolving beast that changes daily almost you know there's there's new threats there's new exploits happening daily you know there's new systems that are coming into play to try and help us be more secure and better protected um but it just it changes so frequently so it's quite a it's kind of like flowing water. It's just constantly rippling. Whereas with engineering, it's a little bit more, think of it more like syrup, like sludge, very viscous, um, which is fine. It kind of has to be for that kind of sector because otherwise if it was as fluid as water, we'd never be safe. <laughs> so yeah, it's, that was the, the interest from my point of view, sort of moving to cyber that it's a bit more current. And I, I don't mean that in a sort of negative connotation to, to engineering, but I think it's just, it kind of has an appeal in that sense. And you mentioned earlier about people think of cyber and they think of hackers and, and SOC analysts, you know, it looks quite exciting and jazzy. And I guess there is, it does have that pull towards it in that sense. It's like a, a really attractive person and it pulls you across, but then you sort of get into it and you're like, oh, okay, <laughs> this is what it's really like. you know. <laughs> so yeah, so, but um, yeah, I mean, but every industry has its drawdowns as well. So yeah, I, lo- I love that description of cyber as just being like really appealing from a distance, and then you get into it, and you're like, "Oh, this is awful." Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, wow. <laughs> yeah. I do. I mean, a really interesting aspect is sometimes I sort of look back on my my past, and I sort of think, "Hmm, would it have been easier if I sort of stayed in that sector?" Probably might have been, but you know, the challenge. I think is the challenge. That's probably the the golden crux of it, or the whore crux, should we say? You know. There's always something to be done and that kind of makes it interesting for me, but it also equally makes it quite like, wow, this is just chaos at the same time. Yeah. So for people who are, you know, hearing you talk about security architecture and maybe, um, interested in it, what kind of skills do you think makes a good security architect? And I don't really mean to put you on the spot and say, like, give me 10 skills that are critical to a security architect. But what I'm looking for here is very often when we talk about people getting into penetration testing, one of the things that comes up is like, oh, do I need to know how to program, for example? So what kind of skills might be useful to somebody who's looking to become a security architect or something that you think is, you know, a fundamental requirement for that role? The one thing I probably always draw upon is like if you know how to understand 
context in terms of diagrams and that sounds really really basic but it's kind of can you sort of look at a cloud environment or a data center or a box that does something could you somehow interpret it as a diagram that's as simple as, as bare basic as it needs to go in that sense because you can kind of see those components you can dissect it and say you know this thing talks to this thing and it uses whatever to talk to it you know that kind of thing that's the simplistic view and i will refer to something that is something which is solution architecture if you can kind of say that you know you can draw snazzy diagrams then that kind of helps but it's it's not just about drawing snazzy diagrams it's also understanding technical documentation that explains how something works so if you ever sort of have to read something about a particular protocol it's having a bit of knowledge about how that protocol is built for example so like tcp ip is an example if you know the kind of fundamentals of it then that's the level that an architect needs to go down to at some point. You can go further uh, or you can kind of keep it at relatively high level. But that's the kind of information that you need to understand. And it's it's not needed from day one. It's more the ability to process that level of information. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of um, it's been able to review technical information to that level, but also kind of pictorially analyze it as well to help you break down the, the solution. I know that it might sound uh, a little bit silly to some people listening in to say like the ability to read a diagram is important, but like it it's just so frequent, isn't it, within within roles like ours and also producing diagrams. Previously, I was a network engineer before I was a penetration tester. And within that role, you know, very often systems were, were described using a range of diagrams. You'd have the, the physical diagram, which is which cables are plugged into which pieces of kit. You'd have the logical diagram, which is how is the network VLAN. And then maybe you'd have uh, a security diagram in terms of like where are the trust boundaries. And like that's very important for understanding the, the context of the system and making sure that it's working in the way that you think it is. And even now, being a penetration tester, whilst I don't produce those documents, I do consume an awful lot of them. So, for example, when um, working with customers and looking at doing security reviews or penetration tests, one of the things we need to know is, like, how big is this system? Where big here, I mean, like... Um, how complex it is, is it, is it in regards to how long will it take me to do the security assessment? Uh, and sometimes, like, from customers, the, the, the diagrams we get aren't always great. I, like, I'll, I'll <laughs> speak directly to our customers now. Please, a decent diagram is really critically important to my role. And I remember one recently, a customer asking us to do a penetration test of their, their infrastructure. And the diagram is basically like a box that has on-prem and a box that has cloud and it's like, all of our stuff is either on-prem or in the cloud. It's in one of these two boxes. And it's like, <laughs> this diagram is useless to me. Yeah, no, absolutely. So that's, um, I'm, I'm glad you said that, actually. That brings me on to my fourth side of the cube. Oh, we're on to four here. This is good. Yeah, this is this is a rolling series now. So this is security testing. So even though that obviously then starts to fall into like the penetration and vulnerability kind of uh, kind of assessment area, one of the things that a security architect is quite good at doing or should be good or maybe good i don't know what the correct terminology should be there but it's kind of helping with with security testing and that's that's obviously a, a, another side or silo to to the whole kind of cyber security and one of the things a security architect's quite good at doing is where i sort of said this, you know pictorially understanding the scope of the system then actually sort of translating that and giving that to like a penetration tester or penetration test house because like you said, Holly, where you've got um, a client and you're saying, look, can you give us as much information because it helps us in, you know, doing our enumeration and so forth. If they give you two boxes with a line between those two boxes and it's on-prem and cloud, it's like, okay, great. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's that's not helpful. <laughs> Whereas if you can get more of a 
diagram where you can start showing lots of lines saying, oh, yeah, but our cloud system talks to these third party services, they're SaaS providers, but they use APIs, but they go over here. And oh, yeah, we have a VPN, that VPN's using uh, IPsec and it's just configured this way and it talks to our on-prem. You start to build up a picture and, and, and that way you can scope out a really good thorough pen test because that's one of the things that sort of, it's like a bone in my body that I like to sort of make sure that when pen testers are, are doing a system, they have a, at least a basic diagram with some of the protocols or IP ranges and so forth to, to kind of give them a bit of a depiction of what's going on. Because at the end of the day, you want a penetration tester to tell you as much as you can for the limited time that they, they've got to test on the system. So that's why it's quite important. And I think that's where, you know, the security architect can kind of take that information and and try and put it together in a sort of single page document, you know, to the to a pen test house. So yeah, so that's that's the fourth side basically. And, and obviously I sort of covered vulnerability uh, assessments. That's either done by a pen test house or you may have an in-house uh vulnerability manager who'll who'll do that. And that's you know sometimes that's where you look at potential vulnerabilities that have been identified and the security architect might need to risk impact whether that needs to be addressed or not. Yeah, from from my point of view, bringing in my bias as a penetration tester here, my preference is for um, customers to to perform vulnerability management internally. The the main reason here is like I want to come on site to do a pen test, and there only be cool vulnerabilities. I don't want to be talking about missing patches from a year ago and default passwords and default misconfigurations and stuff like that, because that stuff can be can be uh, swept up much more uh, effectively. And also, a lot of organisations they only do maybe um, annual pen tests, and leaving it you know potentially up to a year to find out about those very fundamental very basic um issues is is just definitely too long from a security point of view but no my preference is to you know to get into an organization and for them to think they have done as much as they could from from a remediation point of view and we're really there just to either validate that things are working as expected or hopefully do something cool or something interesting to demonstrate uh, uh you know an interesting attack chain definitely i'll i'll vouch for that because um with with vulnerability scanning you know you're you've got the tools and you know relatively nothing to next next to nothing costs you know to actually sort of get the low-hanging fruit as we call it like from a pen tester side you 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 want to catch those really exciting exploits that you know is a triage of x y and z vulnerability put together to you know get an escalation of some sort and that's the stuff that does happen out there in the wild so that's kind of really what you want to focus that scope of a pen test on yeah vulnerability scanning should just be a, a bau activity that you know kind of gets rid of the, the the kind of low risk that you know you should be just doing as a as a kind of information security function but sadly unfortunately it doesn't happen as much as we'd like it to uh, no, it definitely doesn't. And I can understand it from, from some organizations if they're um, resource constrained or certainly if the organization is quite small and they don't have somebody in the house who, who can do that. Um, that's fair enough. It's it's not necessarily to, to pick on a customer for not doing these activities. It's just like you can get those things done much more frequently and should be doing them much more frequently than you would necessarily be doing active pen testing from a manual pen testing point of view. You mentioned earlier, though, you mentioned um, threat modeling. And you said um, system sketches, like you like to get out a, a pen and paper to do your threat modeling. Can we can we start with what is the benefit to to organizations of threat modeling? If there's somebody listening in and their organization isn't doing threat modeling, what is the benefit? Start there. And then secondarily, like let's run into, well, how do we do them, right? Should we get a whiteboard and, and a, a pen out or should we get some paper? Like how, sh- how do we do threat modeling? Sure, sure. Yeah, so threat modeling is really advantageous because where we sort of just talked quickly there about vulnerability scanning and penetration testing and the differences between those two kinds of services, threat modeling is, is, I always call it sort of something in the middle between those two, where you're effectively 
trying to model those potential risks that may exist. So the obvious examples where like you have a free tier, you know, web server system where you've got a database in the back end, a web server in the middle tier, and then a low balancer, you know, kind of in, in the front with some firewall in between those servers. We call it a free tier model, bread and butter of the industry for, for web servers. Or it used to be, um, it's different these days. And that's, that's a really good example where, for example, you would potentially look at the uh, threat risk that exists. So you might sit there and go, well, I've got a database. What does the database use? Well, it uses SQL or SQL um, query language to, to get information uh, or store information. So it may be prone to SQL attacks. So that's just without even doing anything, you know full well that that potentially may be an attack. I mean, equally on equally on that, it's it's important to to look at a system and and take away attacks that aren't possible, right? It's like if you're not using a structured query language database, then SQL injection vulnerabilities aren't going to exist, right? Or maybe it changes the context. If you're using uh, NoSQL technologies, then the attacks that are possible are different, right? So it's almost just as important to say like this is this is possible and we can exclude this because we know it's not possible because of the tech stack that's deployed. Absolutely, yeah. So it's it's a, it's a combination of saying everything that could be possible, but then looking at your diagram that you've got all the information you've got in front of you because you don't always have a diagram sometimes and rule out what the what there is and what there isn't sort of thing. So for example, like you you pointed out, uh, they may not be using NoSQL, for example. It still has attacks uh, associated with it and, and threat risks that, that come with that, but it just means that it's it's not going to be prone to your standard SQL uh, attacks and so forth. And that's that kind of threat modeling is kind of piecing together the the what if scenarios it's all about what if i and then saying use cross-site scripting on your website you know is that a possibility it's always a possibility but how do you eliminate the threat well okay you have good coding practices to make sure that you've got your right security headers and that you know you code your html and your javascript in such a ways that do x y and z and maybe you want to put in a web application firewall you know you kind of go down the list of crossing out the defense and depth approach you know using the different layers in in that sense and that's kind of how you eliminate the threat and that's that's basically what threat modeling is it's it's doing what a pen tester or maybe a vulnerability scanner might pick out from doing it but you're doing it on paper you're not having to buy a service or scope out a service and then ask a penetration tester you know a week later to then identify that for you you can effectively do it with the team that know the system and potentially security architect or someone equivalent doesn't have to be a security architect it could be anyone that you know has some idea about uh, security one one of the things i'll just mention is um it gets quite useful when working in different industries so like critical natural infrastructure or finance or insurance when you start to look at threat actors as well i i don't know if this is uh, the right phrase to use actually but up your game a little bit on your threat modeling so when you're like, for example, when you look at critical national infrastructure, if you're working in oil and gas, for example, you know, you're the country that you're serving oil and gas to is very dependent on you making sure that those supplies are there. There's a big state kind of actor game at play because you know, it's oil and gas. It's more of a, a geopolitical kind of a thing. Whereas in finance, for example, it becomes more of a financial crime type scenario. You know, there are crime gangs that are trying to get money across in, in ways that they don't get uh, exposed and so forth. So so looking at those two different industries, you get different kinds of actors at play. And that's quite important because it gives you an indication of the attack sophistication that may be on the cards, basically. And that's that's something to sort of bring into your threat modeling as well. Yeah, I definitely see that. Um where organizations will look at systems and look at what is technically possible, like what kinds of attacks are technically possible here, but don't always, you know, take a step back and say, okay, but 
how can we build in an understanding of the likelihood of exploitation? And likelihood of exploitation could be that the vulnerability is well known, that it's uh, there's a publicly available exploit, those kinds of things. But it can also be exactly what you said of just like, is there a group out there who is specifically targeting this kind of vulnerability? Or, or I guess a better way of putting it would be, is there a threat group that has this capability? And then also is like, is that threat group likely to target an organization such as ours? Yeah. And I know sometimes people get a bit um, twitchy with that that kind of discussion because a lot of security people want to draw the line of like, oh, no, no, we address all vulnerabilities and we, we mitigate all risks. And like, that that's fine. Um, but you still have to prioritize them because you're still going to find out that there's many things to deal with and you can only start, you know, you've got to start somewhere. Definitely. No, absolutely. Um, there's, there's one thing I'm sort of starting to think and, and look into is, I don't know if it's a new piece. I don't know if there's someone doing it out there today. Um, by all means, let me know if they are. But um, you, you often hear sort of from the SOC side, like um, CTI or threat intelligence uh, analysis, which is where, you know, your SOC analysts, if they're not dealing with an incident or identifying that there's some kind of crazy attack happening in their system, they're sort of busy looking at potential threat intelligence that's happening out there on, on the internet, basically, and out in the real world and using that to amalgamate potential attack vectors. So, yeah, so I've never really sort of thought about combining that kind of CTI intelligence with threat modeling because it's quite easy to get a piece of paper, draw a couple of blocks and some data flow diagrams and say, right, what are threat actors? Yeah, state-sponsored actors. You've got terrorists. You've got your, you know, kind of script kiddie hacker. You might have a a rogue employee. You know, it's easy to do those kind of uh, threat actors. But actually trying to make it more specific using threat intelligence is definitely an area to look into. I don't think it's really been sort of combined so much as to, you know, you'd need probably some software to help automate some of that. But yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely an area to, to, to look into. It's interesting hearing your experience of companies not already doing that kind of thing, because we do see it in other areas. So for example, within red teaming, we have Tiber, threat intelligence based ethical red teaming. So we're, we're bringing um, threat intelligence to, to tailor the red team to um, likely threat actor profiles, those kinds of things. Uh, and then, of course, when we're when we're looking at penetration testing, that's something that we're, we're bringing in is is this idea of um, so we could have, for example, objective led penetration tests where we're looking at um, you know specifically targeting something. But it, it's completely sensible that you could you could take that a step back. We mentioned earlier that threat modeling does share some kind of goals with pen testing whilst they're a very different approach it's it's a, a similar intention i mean like on one hand of course just improving security but like the the way that we would approach that is similar so yeah it, it um it wouldn't surprise me if organizations are building threat intelligence into uh their threat modeling i can tell you an example of where I've had a really interesting view on things where um, threat intelligence has been a major part of that. That was dealing with the NotPetya attack back in 2017. Um, the the interesting thing about that was being called into an organization to deal with a ransomware attack. And at the same time that I'm dealing with that organization, there is a major multinational ransomware attack taking place. So we have, on one hand, the discussions that we're having with the customer in terms of what are they seeing, how are their systems acting, what kind of log information do they have? And on the other hand, you've got Twitter going absolutely mad with this major attack taking place. And that doesn't mean those two things are related, right? This customer could have been hit by an unrelated ransomware and the timing is just, you know, I mean, that's going to that's going to be likely, right, where two organizations get hit at the same time by ransomware and it's just two different threat groups. But equally, it could be, hey, everybody else is going crazy on social media about this attack that's taking place. It could be the 
that attack that that we're seeing and in that instance it, it actually was that organization was being hit by notpetya and um that definitely was interesting because what we're looking at there is um gathering this organization's view of what's happening so getting malware samples tearing the malware apart to see how it's behaving what capabilities it has those kinds of things but also bringing in this threat intelligence feed of okay who else is tearing apart this malware what capabilities are they seeing that it has and can we correlate that between the two so can we show that this is the same sample and it's it's happening in the same way so we we see threat intelligence being used um during breach response, we see it being used during objective-led pen testing. We see it being used during uh, red team engagements, certainly under Tiber. So yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if if people are bringing threat intelligence into threat modeling. And if they're not, then that's a thing to leave the audience with, right? It's like, hey, you should be doing this because we, we, we see the benefit everywhere else. So we'll definitely see the benefit here. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, completely agree. I mean, if you're transforming your infrastructure and, and moving to kind of a hybrid or cloud scenario for your IT estate, what what is the intel out there to kind of say what 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 are people doing? What are they exploiting? What's the what's the current trend at the moment? You know that definitely needs to be baked into that kind of transformation journey to to inform people to make sure that they're they're aware of it basically. So yeah, no, absolutely. So so threat intel is definitely it has a lot of advantages benefits to to a whole. Uh, range of teams i think it's just it's it's interesting i mean i, I look at threat intel and, and i use it to, to some degree i don't use it to the, the degree that maybe yourselves use it or, or kind of a pen test house or proper sock analysis house would would look into it but i definitely would consider having that more embedded into the security architecture function because it's just important it's just it's free information that you can get uh, most of it's free some of it's commercially paid but yeah, it just depends where you go yeah I, I forgot, I didn't really answer your second part to the question, which was what is, how do you do threat modeling? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I've been taught by some people uh, in, in the OWASP community about how to do threat modeling, um, you know, just to kind of ascertain and extend my own knowledge really on it. Yeah. The simplest way is pen and paper. It, it goes a long way because you can, you know, it's, it's, it's there, you can do it. You can, you can knock out a drawing in, in seconds and start mapping uh, data flows. And that that's kind of what a threat model is. So you kind of draw a circle, this is my scope. And then you say, well, what's in scope? What are we looking at threat modeling here? And it could be, like you said, you might have a number of different microservices that are talking to an API gateway, or it could be a load of server infrastructure that yeah, deployed in, in a data center. It, it doesn't matter. It's really sort of compartmentalized the, the different systems. And then how do those systems talk to each other? So if they talk from you know, system A to system B, what protocol is that using? Is it HTTPS? Is it a SQL, um, you know, is it a kind of uh, MBUS type protocol? It's really looking at it at that kind of abstraction layer and then asking that question, well, are there any sort of boundaries here, security boundaries that are in place today? So, for example, between server and server B, is there a firewall between those two systems that only allow that route to be permitted? And that starts to build the security profile. Uh, on on that drawing already just by saying there's a boundary there because we've got a firewall and it only allows uh, port 443 to allow the server to send HTTPS requests across and that's all you need to do really to sort of build up a threat model and then you start asking the questions of the what if scenario so what if this server was exposed to internet and such and such sponsored actor wanted to do a malformed request and you might sit there and you say right let's write this risk up because it's a potential risk. And then you'd look at your drawer and say, well, do we have any controls in the place? Are there any security controls? And you might sit there and go, yeah, we've got a firewall. We've hardened this server to CIS. 
we only permit uh, certain queries to be sanitized by that web server. So you start to kind of say, well, actually, that risk is not present. So therefore, it's not it's not there. But you might sit there and say, um, well, we, we process payments on this web server. We don't harden the server. Um, and it's got, you know, a, a heck load of ports that are exposed to the Internet. And we don't really patch it that much. And that already sits there and says, hang on a minute. So if I was to do a malform request or use a potential exploit here, I could probably own that server if I wanted to and therefore compromise the system. So that's kind of the difference in, in how to do threat modeling. I mentioned pen and paper, which which is one example. And that's just because it's it's the simplest way of doing it. Um, I use uh, draw editors. So I use draw.io because it's free and open source. Mm. Um, that's a bit like Visio in, in the old school world, but just a bit uh, less Microsofty, um, so it actually works better. So I use that as well, which is a good way. And then you can kind of take it a little bit more advanced. I mean, there are commercial software sort of SaaS providers out there that allow you to do threat modeling. So, for example, I know some commercial providers that will let you literally enter in your if you if you own like a, a cloud account with AWS or GCP, for example, you create a role, you get some credentials, and it will basically read the APIs of that cloud provider. And basically get an asset inventory and automatically model all your different components in your cloud environment and then build risks on top of that, which is a threat risk modeler. So that's, that's one way of going down that route, but that's quite commercial and they can be quite expensive and, and throw up a lot of false positives. The other one that I have been using with different clients is where we've got a more in the AppSec side where you've got people that are building software. Uh, on a daily basis and using automation to deploy that software you can build sort of automatic threat modeling in into those processes as well where it kind of relies on developers to write code where they put comments in their code and then there's libraries that will pick up on that and, and automatically build out diagrams and then you know your security architect or uh, security champion can kind of come along and look at that and go perfect you've done all the modeling for me i can then model the threat risk on top of it so there's a, there's a few avenues that can, you can kind of go down in that sense yeah, I think one of the things to point out as well is um, it's really easy to to talk about and to think about threat modeling um, in the abstract, in the context of building a new system, right? Everything's a lot easier when you're building a new system and you've got no tech debt. Yep. And it's just like, oh, we can make all of these good decisions and no bad decisions. But, but very often, organizations are making improvements or going through digital transformation and threat modeling is still useful there as well, right? I, I, I give a good example from um, from last year working with a company. They had uh, a penetration test. It didn't go well because they had a flat network. So there's effectively no segmentation between um, areas. So one of the significant um, outputs of that penetration test would be like, hey, it would be great if you could uh, implement network segmentation. And I think if people haven't gone through a process like that of, of looking at like, okay, we have uh, that organization had something like um, 700 offices. Wow. So network segmentation was, it was a major project. And um, when it's like, okay, where do we draw the lines? <laughs> it's like, okay, we acknowledge the fact that we're going to do network segmentation, but where do we draw the lines? Uh, and also what do we allow through, right? So you mentioned a second ago, like, you know, a- allowing through expected traffic, mapping data flows and, and, and doing that kind of thing. Um, but for them, it's like, Okay, well, what is expected? What is what is needed? And one of the first things that they they fell down upon, it, it seemed to them very easy to uh, effectively completely segment each office from each other, and then allow the headquarters office where the IT team was um, access into each environment for for management and and all of the IT daily tasks. And that was cool. But when they actually looked at the the 
types of traffic that um, the IT team would be sending and the way in which they were looking at implementing that restriction, those those um, segments, it was just like, yeah, that's just everything I'm going to be doing on a pen test. So it's like, oh, we're going to allow FTP, we're going to allow file transfer over SMB, we're going to allow RDP, and it's cool. It's like, yeah, that that's not really segmentation because of the number and types of holes that you've punched through. Um, so I think that's something that's important for the audience, like, when you think about threat modeling or if you're listening to this and you're thinking like, oh, this is great. You know, I'm going to bring this into into my company. Do you consider going through digital transformation? Do you consider like we have all of this tech debt, we have all of these existing problems uh, and how can we use threat modeling as part of those security improvements? Yeah, no, absolutely. So I think one of the things you kind of highlighted was that if you do use threat modeling and particularly where you've got someone that it's not greenfield, so basically it's not a, a blank canvas to go with, you've already got technical debt there's inherent legacy there's inherent issues to deal with so you know if you come along and threat model and and derive new risks it's not exactly going to be wow you know we can deal with that and do it in a perfect world so the reality of it is is that you tend to generate these risks and then they get they have to be prioritized and it's it's kind of that's where the role of the architect comes in this is kind of the fifth side of the queue see how i brought that in there that's good yeah um which is kind of more about security business uh, analysis, where you're looking at the, the the kind of risks and understanding whether there's business justification to maybe seek investment or escalation. So an example would be where you're doing a digital transformation, the architect's embedded into the team or, or was brought in a, a, as a consulting aspect, and you do a, a one-stop threat model of, of what they're intending to migrate to, you generate some risks and they say, yep, fine, thank you. And you sit there and kind of analyze this and say, well, no, hang on a minute. You've got some really outstanding issues here that if you go live with that, then I wouldn't be surprised if you, if your account was compromised within a year, for example. Cause remember when stuff's connected to the internet, there is thousands and thousands of things just pinging it every day. Lots of search engines that are just finding these things. It's making it easier to see things that are connected to the internet. So that's where you, the kind of security architect really needs to bolster the business case and actually say, well, if that risk was to actually amalgamate and become real, then there's a potential data breach happening here. Or you might be looking at a ransomware that could easily filtrate the system um, and then bring that system down. What, what's, the, what's the downtime starting to look at? And that starts to feed into the kind of instance response and the, the BCPDR the business continuity and disaster recovery side of things where you're looking at the business impacts of you know xy going down and thinking ahead as to the implications of that so it's it's, it's an area that we don't want to think of and it's it's often one of the controls security controls in cybersecurity that we don't like to do because a it's not the most fun activity but it needs to be done and that's where you know, the threat modeling can feed into that to give you examples of, you know, how do I, how do I escalate this risk and, and justify it to the CTO or the CFO, for example, that we need extra funding to, to be incorporated into this program. And that's, that's where you look at it. That's where you start to kind of go down that avenue and, and, and draw upon that experience to, to justify your, your risk outcome. Yeah. It's such a key aspect of any security activity. Like, putting things in terms that the, either the business cares about or even just the, the the business understands. I know that very often when I'm doing public speaking and things like that, I have to adjust the way that I speak depending on what the audience is. And it's the same with any security activity, right? It's like, you know, am I speaking to a group of pen testers and then I might use pen tester slang or am I speaking to a, a group of business leaders? And even as we, we stumbled across a second ago, sometimes just 
the use of acronyms. Yeah. Right? You know, like, oh, we'll say BCPDR, and I know immediately what you're talking about, but then it's like, oh, does this audience know that acronym? Yeah. Or, or even worse, does in their context, does that acronym mean something different, right? Yeah. Because there's a lot of the intersectionality between uh, industries can be a problem. We are terrible with our acronyms in this industry. <laughs> Cyber is one of the worst, yeah. Uh, it can't be helped. I think, just to pick up a little bit on that, I think the easiest way is to try and always think of a triangle depending on what industry you're in or who you're working with is kind of understand this is it financial is it brand reputation or is it compliance led that, that's my go-to triangle and if you used to be a dot in the middle of those three points that form that triangle always say to yourself what is this industry am i in e-commerce where you know the, the financial downtime is going to be bigger than any of those other two or am i in a financial insurance sector where compliance is going to be a lot bigger or am i a Tesco's where brand reputation is much bigger, for example, always think yourself in, in that triangle and then work your way backwards from that to, to justify, you know, your, your business case to support the risks that you find. That's the best way I find to try and justify it. It doesn't always work, but it's, it's a good approach, I think, to, to help people who may or may not know that much in that side of things. Yeah, I know from from my side of uh, things recently as well, just like stumbling over some of the basic terminology that we use. So habitually, we we would use the term um, threat actor. That's a karma. That's a generic term for just like bad person. Um, but some people might prefer like cyber criminal in some contexts. And it's like, yeah, that's fine. But does cyber criminal include nation state actors? Where right? it's like, well, it's not it's not cyber crime. It's different. And 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 trying to like um, pick a good term for for that audience. And, and certainly not end up just going like threat actor or cyber criminal or hacker or cracker or whatever term you prefer. <laughs> we could call them naughty people. Naughty people. I'm writing that down. <laughs> they're naughty people. I'm writing that down. Yeah. yeah they're, uh, what's that? It's generic for everyone that's doing yeah. naughty stuff. I like yeah. naughty as well because it's like, it's not necessarily a crime. It's just like, <laughs> you know, it's just naughty. Exactly. This person didn't know you shouldn't be pressing these buttons and executing this script. It just happens. <laughs> Didn't know what he was doing. I'm going to do my threat modeling now where I just like a group all of the, you know, script kiddies, national state hackers, cyber criminals. They're just all going in a box that's labeled naughty people. Yeah, it's, it's basically good people who do something wrong or naughty people. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah two actors now. That's how we've slimmed it down these days. <laughs> well, that's like the old, um, oh yeah, we've, we've, we've narrowed down everybody who might target our organization to um, internal threat actors and external threat actors. <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Oh, sweet. I think like that's a, a really great overview of that, that difficult question that we opened with, it's like, what is a security architect? I think we've, we've covered like some, some of the major areas there. Do you think there's anything that we've, we've missed from the work that you do, the, the kind of uh, background that you've got that, that you want to raise to the audience? I probably should finish off with like the, the sixth face of the cube this has come to me <laughs> i was i was waiting to see if that was coming you can tell you can tell that i haven't made this up at all you know i had i had a plan <laughs> if you didn't mention the sixth side what i was going to do is say that the audience will have to join us for part two where they find <laughs> out what the sixth side is it's fine i'm, I'm, I'm not going to do a home and away or neighbors kind of you know cliffhanger uh, that'll just be cruel um but no go ahead what is the sixth side i think the sixth side of, of a security architect is the more the softer kind of cultural side of things it's not necessarily things that they would deliver themselves but they would support companies clients organizations in the human aspect of it so that does get incorporated into the different sort of cube faces as i call it but i think trying to get awareness training and, and trying to sort of better equip people in in any business is, is obviously it has its own dedicated team 
generally in, in an infosec type function or maybe in a HR function, but definitely an architect helps in there because it's it's all about the content and the message that you want to get across. And though security architects are on, they are typically on the verge of being technical. It's about that translation of technical information and how that needs to be immersed into into people who who to be honest, don't really care about security. You know, if they work for a business, you know, if they work in finance or marketing, they're not bothered about security because it's just it's not their agenda. But it's all about how do you get that message across? And I think that's something that the architects can help different functions in a business to get that message across or try and explain why we need to be doing what we do um, and how it helps you continue your job on a day-to-day basis, basically. I think that is one of the difficult lessons of working within security is the fact that um, security is I'm going to say like security is very rarely, but I probably mean never. Um, security is never the number one priority and, and security um, professionals often struggle with this, but they say, no, security should always be the number one priority. And it's like, okay, so we're putting security above safety. Would we accept, you know, the risk of injury and death uh, over becoming insecure? Or should we put security over business solvency? <laughs> should like, you know, and the, it is it is a difficult thing, but, you know, security isn't always number one. I'm not saying... Don't quote me on this, people. I'm not saying security is third. I'm just saying that in the context of, of a business, and certainly as businesses scale, things get complicated, right? And it isn't always the case that we can just draw a ring around security and say everything else stops until this is achieved. Um, so bringing in that aspect that you mentioned of like the the security culture side of things is important. Yeah, exactly. Because it, it's one of the the ways in which security can play into the priority of the business and play into um, hardening a business uh, against attack. Yeah, I'd always say, like, my, my philosophy, um, and I know there'll be people that disagree with me in the, in the infosec areas out there, but my view is that security should be an enabler, not a blocker. If it becomes a blocker, then it has too much gravitas to prevent kind of innovation. And at the end of the day, businesses survive by making business, by, by selling things or you know, generating revenue or kind of, you know, building a, a crowd or, or or getting support in such a way. And that can only happen by allowing those businesses to do what their objectives are. And I think that's where security needs to take that approach where we'd love to be a blocker and say, hold on, put the brake lights on. They're stopping analyze this. But the reality is we can't necessarily do that as much as I want to do it. You just can't. So the reality is, is that you need to be an enabler, enabler. You need to try and support rather than say, this is wrong or come to me when you think this is right or wrong. It's, it's kind of, you've got to, be hand-holding to, to support the industry. That's, I think that's the best way forward. And that in itself will potentially help more people realise the importance of security rather than seeing it as being it's a niche little field that we require it, but we don't necessarily know what it is or does. Yeah, great. So Evan, thank you very much for being on the podcast. If people have heard you speak and they want to know more about you or, or the kind of work that you do, where where can they find more out? Uh, no problems. Um, you can either visit our site at Complete Cyber and ping us across there or can hook up on LinkedIn. I don't know my bio. I probably should. <laughs> so, we'll drop it in the show notes. Don't worry. Yeah. Or you can you can hook us uh, or follow us on Twitter. Uh, Complete Cyber is our Twitter feed. So I did know that feed. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thank you very much. Thank you.